Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So together, we're going to explore six different practices for awakening your heart. All of us have hearts that have some plaque and need some uh, cleaning, like a hygiene practice. I was reminded about this when I was on my way here on the airplane. I was sitting on the airplane and across Uh, for me, uh, across the aisle, there was a mother with a beautiful African uh, traditional shirt on, and uh, her son, who was probably around nine years old. And um, after takeoff, um, she went to the bathroom, and then uh, once the plane was level, they started the uh, drink service, you know, where they pushed the cart through. And so maybe she was stuck at the back of the plane and she was gone for a while. And then over the intercom, they said, uh, is there anybody with medical uh, training? We, we need somebody with medical training at the back of the plane. So I didn't think anything of it. But then uh, the meal service continued and she wasn't coming back. And then I started to notice her son was getting really anxious. And then her son clued in that something had happened uh, to his mom. So then he was trying to hold it together, and then he started looking out the window so nobody would see him, and you could see his eyes tearing up in the reflection in the window. And um, so the stewardess came over to him, and she said, "It's everything will be okay, and she did what anybody would do, which is have a candy, have a pretzel, <laughs> have a drink, you know. And of course, none of this really helped. And um, so uh, then still, uh, time was slowing down. Um, she hadn't come back yet. And uh, then a woman from the front of the plane, who was maybe a nurse, went to the back of the plane. And, um, and then the stewardess uh, repositioned the boy uh, closer to the aisle so she could keep an eye on him uh, and moved him one seat forward so I could see the back of his face. And um, and then this man in a business suit, who was the least suspecting bodhisattva <laughs> on the airplane, uh, leaned over to the boy and put his hand on the boy's skin and just started stroking 
with the softest fingers on this boy's arm until the boy just started settling down. And then uh, when we were landing, because it's just a short flight, uh, he held the boy's hand the whole time through the landing and then accompanied the boy uh, uh, to where the par- paramedics were uh, at the end of the flight. So, this in Buddhist practice is called uh, the Bodhisattva path. And uh, about a century after the Buddha died, there was a meeting called the First Council, where all the elder monks got together and created rules for a mostly monastic sangha, a mostly monastic community. And then about a century after that, there was another meeting for people who didn't feel included in the first meeting. Every community is like this, right? They, they create rules, and then people feel excluded, and they need a new meeting. So this was about 200 years after uh, the death of the Buddha. And they had a second council, and householders came. People who had families, people who had jobs, men and women, people who were not celibate, people who were celibate. And they all came to talk about uh, how they were going to practice the Buddha's teachings. How were they going? They were going to embody the Buddha's teachings. And one of the themes that came up in this practice, in this discussion, was called uh, the Bodhisattva path. Uh, Bodhi means awakened or awakening, and um, sattva means being. Sometimes it's translated as awakened being, but I like to think of it as an awakening being, like this man on the airplane. In that moment, unrehearsed, he responds with his whole body to this boy and creates a field of the heart, a field of awakening. A bodhisattva is somebody who's practicing, who's a yogi, like you, like me. And we're practicing because we're so stressed out and our lives are a disaster. And we just want to calm down and have less stress and less pain and less reactivity. And then we start to realize that as we become more calm and more settled, we become more sensitive to the unsettledness, to the reactivity, and to the pain of other people, to the pain of the earth, to the pain of animals. We start to realize that if we're all interconnected, we can't be free if other people are imprisoned. We can't be free if other people are in pain. And then we realize the only practice worth doing is a practice that includes other people. So this is called the Bodhisattva path, and this is what I call a path of the heart. You're walking to the door of enlightenment, you put your hand on the door, you're ready to go, and then you turn around and realize, oh, other beings. Have you had this in your meditation practice yet? You're totally in your experience, suffering away on your meditation cushion, and then you realize, oh yeah, (laughs) there's somebody next to me. And then you kind of straighten up. You're still suffering, but you're faking it, you know. (laughs) And if we all fake it well enough, we support each other. We're falling apart, but we're upright. 
in our falling apart. So the bodhisattva ideal is you at your best. You at your most creative, most responsive, most compassionate. And there are six practices we're going to explore together. The first is the perfection of generosity. The second is the perfection of conduct. The third is the perfection of patience. The fourth is the perfection of balanced energy. The fifth, the perfection of meditative practice. And the sixth, the perfection of wisdom. The perfection of wisdom. The word paramita is usually translated as perfection. You can also translate it as cultivation. Sometimes I like, I like to think of it as polishing. You have some generosity, you have resources of generosity, they can be polished. You have the treasure of patience, it can be polished. Imagine your mind is right here, in what we usually call the heart. And imagine that your heart is an organ of imagination. These six practices are about stretching the imagination of the heart. This is an amazing thing about human beings, is we have this incredible capacity for imagination. And what is spiritual teaching? Spiritual teaching is about stretching our imagination to see things beyond the self-centered viewpoint that we're normally housed in. So these six teachings are about stretching our imagination so we can tell the story of our lives from more perspectives. And a bodhisattva is someone who sees their life as inclusive. It's like if I asked you to draw the circle of yourself, would the circle include the sound of the birds? If not, you have to draw it wider. Would the circle include the river? Would the circle include the town? The neighbors who you don't get along with? If the circle, as you draw it, hits a snag like envy, then you have to draw the circle wider. If drawing the circle hits a snag like jealousy, we have to draw the circle even wider. And that's what I mean by stretching our imagination. There's a great Aesop fable of a farmer who one summer was actively dying. And he had three kids. And he said to his kids, I'm dying now, and I've buried a treasure in the field. When I die, I want you to dig and find the treasure. So, at the end of the summer, he passed away. The kids waited through the winter, and then at the end of the winter, 
they thought, okay, now it's time. And they each took a different area of the field, and they started digging and digging, and they couldn't find anything, so they quit. Then, again, they decided, there must be a treasure here somewhere. Let's start again. So, with a lot of sweat, they started digging and digging, and again couldn't find a treasure. And then a third time. They quit, started... Can you imagine doing this in these fields, like by hand? Digging and digging, looking for this treasure that your father has left you. And then finally they quit and gave up. There must not be a treasure. And then spring came, and the whole field sprouted. Amazing vegetables (laughs) through the whole field. And there was treasure everywhere. When the Buddha talked about practice, he never spoke about practice from the point of view of the self. He always talked about practice as a field that one's cultivating. And that's what we're doing here together. We're learning practices so that we can cultivate a field so that when difficulty arises, when trouble arises, when we experience suffering, it happens within a more fertile and expansive field. It's not a practice that's about you getting somewhere. Has anybody felt that today? If you're in the meditative practice, whether it's sitting meditation or walking meditation or cooking, and it's about you trying to practice, it's far too small. But if you just stay with the schedule, and you stay with your breathing, you cultivate an environment, an ecology, a field, for what's arising to move through you. So that you start to see that whatever is arising is sacred. You don't need to embroider it, and you don't need to push it away. And the way you do this is you allow your body to have contact with what's emerging right now. This morning when I gave meditation instruction, I said, as you feel your breathing, let the breath include the sounds of the environment. So you're feeling your breath and you hear the sounds of the birds the sounds of a river, the sounds of a car engine, and just allow that to be included. Oh, there it is right now. Allow this to be included in your experience. And I think this is the most courageous part of our practice, is to allow the body, the sense organs, to have contact with what's emerging, so that what's emerging can make contact with the senses. And the whole process is titrated by your breathing, by the support of community. Irritations arising, make contact with irritation. Notice if you start getting superficial, 
I'm unhappy today. I need chocolate. How come there's no chocolate at the retreat center? I'm going to sneak off into town and get some chocolate or steal the chocolate that I saw under my neighbor's bed, <laughs> which I've done. <laughs> On the airplane, this man in the suit didn't hesitate. The feeling of this boy's aloneness and isolation and worry just was in this man's body. And immediately he just reached over. Like when your right arm is injured, your left arm comes over and takes care of it. When you have contact then you can have experience. You can't have depth of experience if you're not allowing contact. So this is the most important meditative instruction of the week, and it's not just for sitting meditation, it's not just for walking meditation, it's for every moment of your experience here. Let yourself contact what's happening in this moment. And if there's contact, there's experience. If you are making contact and then you notice fear or defensiveness, let, let that be what you're making contact with. And then let experience happen. And then when experience happens, realization happens. You can't have realization, you can't have transmission if there's no experience. And you can't have experience if there's no contact. When I say realization, I mean having a more pure experience of each moment, unfiltered by what you know already. All the stuff you know already. When you sit in meditation for a few days in a row, you start to really see how much suffering you add. To moments of contact. We add so much suffering. Fine, there is suffering that we can't undo. There's suffering you can't undo. But you also don't have to add more suffering to your suffering. Does everybody know that experience? You're suffering and then you just pile suffering on top of your suffering. You feel melancholy and then you start watching French cinema. <laughs> so one side of practice is learning how to let go and have a more undefended heart. And the other side of practice is in that experience of letting go, we then cultivate character. So on the one hand, we're letting go, and on the other <coughs> hand, we're cultivating character. And so we're going to use this paradigm of the six paramitas, or the six practices of the heart, to cultivate the heart in a direction 
that's more inclusive and less self-centered. The American writer and artist Miranda July uh, says it like this. Some people need a red carpet rolled out in front of them in order to walk forward into friendship. They can't see the tiny outstretched hands all around them, everywhere, like leaves on trees. Do you want to hear it again? Mm -hmm. Some people need a red carpet rolled out in front of them in order to walk forward into friendship. They can't see the tiny outstretched hands all around them, everywhere, like leaves on trees. Imagine all the leaves on the trees here as these tiny outstretched hands saying, we're holding you. We won't abandon you. We're right here. So the path of a bodhisattva is quieting the mind, settling the heart, and then allowing these characteristics, friendship, patience, peacefulness, to abide in our experience, to know what that feels like. You don't need a red carpet rolled out. In, well, maybe you need an eight-day retreat rolled out in front of you. And remember, the word paramita is the idea of stretching perfection. It's an ideal. Perfect giving is impossible. Solving homelessness is impossible. Providing support for every single person with mental illness is impossible. And what else are we going to do? We roll up our sleeves and we go to work doing exactly those things. Trying to stop a friend suffering from an addiction is impossible. Knowing someone who wants to take their own life and trying to stop that, it's impossible. And yet, uh, what else are we going to do? We have to step forward. And that's the courageous part of this practice. But sometimes when our hearts are agitated, we're so caught in our own moods and our own stories, we don't even see the need around us. And that's why sometimes we have to come on retreat and look a little bit more closely at what's really going on for us and what our values are and whether we're actually living those values. Paramita is a Sanskrit feminine noun. Param means other shore, and ita means arrived. 
usually it gets translated as arriving on the other shore. But I like to think of it as other shore arrived. There's another shore, and it's right here. I like to tell this joke, you know, someone's on the other shore, and someone yells to them, Hey, how'd you get to the other shore? And they say, You are on the other shore. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want to use this metaphor of the other shore... It means that everyone here who is practicing has the job of using their practice to ferry people to the other shore. Your job is to use the techniques of this practice to help people move from the shore of contraction and fear to the other shore of freedom, liberation, compassion. I like to think of it as crossing from the shore of I know to the shore of I don't know. The stewardess has probably been trained on how to respond to an emergency with a scenario like the one I described earlier. And yet, this man shows up and helps this boy by touching him. No rehearsal. No rehearsal. And in that moment, he goes from the place of knowing to the place of not knowing. 